You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Vina Jetty, and you're listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Amanda Abeya, and you are listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Brian Eufinger, and you're listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson. And this is Doc G. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, hey, Doc, we often talk about savings rate, frugality, and life hacks in this financial independent movement that we find ourselves in. We're trying to optimize our lives using those levers. But the question today is, do we focus too little on the top line? So we have three different guests to chime in on that question. But before we get into the heart of the conversation, let them introduce themselves to our audience. I'm Brian Eufinger, and I founded an SAT, ACT, and college planning company called Edison Prep with my wife. We have operated for the past almost decade in Atlanta, Georgia, and work with over a thousand students a year on test prep and college planning. And more recently are working on two other educationally related endeavors that we're spinning up. My name is Amanda Obeya. I am a blogger, podcast, and Latina millennial money expert and brand ambassador. And I actually also have a marketing and sales consulting firm where I help bloggers such as ourselves who want to create profitable brands and increase their revenue. Hi, everybody. This is Vina Jetty. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I am a founding partner of Enzo Multifamily, where we syndicate B-class apartment complexes, mainly in the Texas and Florida markets. So Brian, I want to start with you today. Part of the reason we're actually recording this podcast is you sent me an email, something to the effect of, I'd like to be on a panel about people who have hit cost-cutting burnout and focus almost exclusively on growing the top line. Tell us what that means, growing the top line. What does top line mean and where did you get that from? You know, I read extensively and listen to lots of podcasts in our community. And you know, I don't know that I see many financial sources, or at least not enough in my perspective, that talk about things like growing the top line, what cognitive load. So there's some people like Cal Newport and Charles Duhigg in the community that talk about having too much on your mental plate and the importance of reducing cognitive load for the same reason Steve Jobs wear the same outfit every day, just to reduce unimportant tasks. You can focus on the big decisions and the big wins. Uh, you know, so for me, my guilty FI admission is that my wife 
wife and I haven't had a budget until a month ago for the last six years. And we purely only made our budget so we could calculate our FI number. No, no other reason. Because for me, you know, in my opinion, spending X hours a month tracking the expenses and did I get charged an extra $1 for XYZ versus growing the business just as far as the distraction level would actually cost us a boatload of money. And, and I think, you know, we, we've grown our business, you know, almost 800% revenue in the past eight years. And I think we've only grown faster because we don't focus about the small, tiny line items, but we focus purely on growing, you know, the top line. And just generally speaking, I think that the FI community, there's a lot of worship and justified worship of Mint and you need a budget, but I think there could also be a healthy amount of respect, additional respect than more so than currently is paid to people like Cal Newport's deep work stuff and Ramit Sethi's big wins and Charles Duhigg's habits and, and that kind of thing. And for definitional purposes, can you explain to the audience where the term top line comes from? Yeah. So top line is just the, you know, the gross revenue of the business. So when I look at growing the top line, I look at increasing the overall revenues coming in uh, to our business. If I can spend the one hour that I'm not mowing my lawn and pay my lawn guy X, not that I would enjoy doing it anyways, and then generate possibly a couple new clients that are worth 10 X, then that, that's just a smart decision. Yeah. And I think if I may be incorrect here, but I believe the term actual top line comes from the income statement, right? Because the top line of your income statement for your business is the gross revenues, whereas the bottom line is your net revenues. So I I believe that's where the actual term comes from. So Vina, I laugh almost every time I see you respond on Facebook in our Facebook group. Is it safe to say you're anti-frugal? Would that describe you? No, I wouldn't say I'm anti-frugal. I just am very much interested in trying to grow my top line versus saving on the bottom line. And I think a lot of that comes from being a real estate entrepreneur where, you know, we value our assets based on the NOI and there's only so much you can cut your expenses, but you can grow your top line virtually in an unlimited manner. So I wouldn't say I'm anti-frugal. I still enjoy saving a dollar here and there. It's just, I don't look to focus on that as much as I do growing revenue. So Amanda, talk a little bit about your coaching clients. How high up on the wish list is making more money? Is that what they come to you to do? Oh, it's high. So I actually started blogging in 2010 because I knew nothing about money. And I have to be honest, I had a difficult time identifying with the FI community until recently. But I started just because I didn't know anything. And like most people know, it was a lot of save money, stay out of credit card debt, you know, the, the basic stuff, budgeting, budget, 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 you know. And at some point, I just realized how counterproductive it all was, especially when I went into business for myself. And I realized I had this huge aha moment a few years ago where I was like, wait a minute, I cannot possibly run my business the same way that I run my personal finances because I'm going to drive it into the ground. So what I did was I started wondering, I'm like, oh, I wonder if my audience is starting to have the same realization because they've just been kind of on a journey with me. So I believe it was 2016, I sent out a survey to my audience and I had them pick between, I think it was four options. And I was like, what is the one thing you need the most help with right now? And it was like budgeting, savings, making money, making money got 81% of the vote. And then that's when I realized, oh, I'm shifting and so is my audience. So what would happen if I just shifted my mindset to making as much money as possible instead of focusing on saving 10 bucks here and there? So Amanda, you said that you couldn't run your business the way you were running your personal finances. Is that a mistake we're making with our personal finances? Should we be running them more like our businesses? 
actually some people do say that that you should see your household as like a business right but for example i can use a credit card in my business and if i have to take not that i've only done this once but like if i have to take on a little bit of debt for an investment and i know how i'm making the money back not a big deal, right? If I do that in my personal life because I just decided to go on a shopping spree, not the smartest thing in the world, right? So obviously there are differences, but I think the idea of starting to look at your household income and kind of run the money as if you were running a business, I think there's some value in that. So for example, I don't cook. I get my meals delivered because I don't have time to cook because my time is better spent doing something else. Is my food budget a little bit more than someone who cooks or someone who's super frugal with the coupons? Sure, but I'm also making four times as much money. So it works out. So Brian, what Amanda is talking a little bit about is mindset. And someone who changed my mindset a little bit on this was Grant Sabatier. And he said something to the extent of money is infinite. What do you think about that concept? And is that something we embrace? I do think that it is infinite in the sense of when I am evaluating, so I mentioned we're working on two other ideas, business ideas that we're spinning up. I look at it as they're useful ideas because I can, once it's properly running, make more money on a per hour basis than I might be doing private tutoring. And that's why it's worthwhile. And so I do think, you know, Gary Vee is a bit intense for some people and he could cuss a little bit less, but you know, his, the most important thing he says <laughs> is to the asset, you know, Warren Buffett or the homeless guy in the street has the exact same number of hours in the day. So to Grant's point, I think it's true. Obviously, Obviously, there's a cap to realistically within reason that you can generate per extra hour. You know, the opportunity cost of time might be, in my opinion, the most under-discussed item in the entire FI community, giving respect and value to the opportunity cost of time. Amanda, you said something that felt very similar to that in one of your blog posts. You said the way that most people are operating is that there is not enough money in the world. Why do people feel that way? Well, I mean, it's social conditioning, right? You know, or we're also conditioned to just blame everybody else for all our financial problems. So, you know, I speak all around the country giving keynotes for major financial companies. I mean, it's amazing how much anxiety people feel about money. And yes, some of it is systemic. There's no denying that. And something needs to be done about that. But at the same time, there's a lot of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater going on out there. So they'll be like, well, I'm going to tell my kids not to go to school because student loans screwed me and I don't want them to get screwed. And I'm like, well, wait a second, hold on. So I think sometimes with money, like we just have this tendency to go to these emotional extremes. And what a lot of people don't realize is that good money management is a lot of emotional awareness. And I think most people aren't even taught how to do that. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, you know, we're, we hear things like money doesn't grow on trees. People say, you know, money is the root of all evil, which is not even what it says in the Bible, but that's what we all hear. You know, there's all these stories going around and honest days work for an honest day's pay as if, if you made money in your sleep, you're a horrible person. So it's just these cultural stories that just permeate throughout society. And there's two really good books on the subject, it's Think and Grow Rich and the Science of Getting Rich, which kind of explains kind of what's going on there. So I think it's lack of awareness and I think it's social conditioning and people just feeling a lot of anxiety right now. So Vina, speaking of anxiety, I like to talk about this idea Brian was bringing up about opportunity costs. So I've mm-hmm. written a past about certain types of cars, one being a Tesla, and I always get <laughs> 
whenever I do that on the internet because people bring up opportunity costs. First and foremost, tell us what kind of cars you have at your house. So I drive a Tesla Model S. My husband drives a Porsche Cayman S and we just added a Volvo X90 or XC90 to our fleet. <laughs> so do people hammer you about opportunity costs when they hear about this in Facebook groups, etc.? I think people have a lot of judgment about others' luxury costs, which it's taken me a long time to kind of get over that. But for me, they don't pay my bills, so I'm okay with it. I've kind of, you know, become more numb to it over the years. But yeah, initially it was actually really hard. And it was difficult too, because we've not always been at the income level that we're at. And so as your income level grows, your expenses also tend to grow with that. I'm a really firm believer in the reason that we work so hard for our money is so that we can also enjoy it because you can't take it with you when you're gone. And it's very important to us, especially being from an Indian family, you know, one of our major goals is to provide for the next generation, just like our parents did for us. And so we plan to do that. But at the same time, I say this over and over again, time is the most valuable asset that any of us have, because you can never make more time like Brian said. And so for me, if money is just a means to buy that time back for my family. And so that's what I really focus on when we look to grow our income or cut our expenses is now can we get that hour of time back so that I can spend it with my kids or my husband or my parents or my sister. And so for us, that's why we look to opportunity cost as being something that's so important. And that's actually central to our household. So yes, we do get hammered for it. We can afford both. So we do it. I like driving my Tesla. It's a nice car. Amanda, I saw you shaking your head a few times as Vina was talking. I mean, is there an opportunity cost fallacy? I mean, are people barking up the wrong tree with this argument? The idea is that you shouldn't spend money on things like cars because there's only a certain (laughs) amount you can enjoy them and you could take that money, invest it, and it'd be worth millions, you know, decades later. No, I lived that life. It was a total waste of time. And that's why I'm so passionate about this topic because it's like I literally was miserable for a few years thinking that saving was the answer. And then when I realized, no, earning is the answer, life got a whole lot better and it became easier to save half my income. So I think it's about balance. I mean, I'll explain what I'm doing right now. I had to move out of my apartment a few months ago. I loved that apartment, but we had to move out. The lease was up and there were construction issues. And I was in a period where I was like, okay, I've got three weeks to find a place. Do I really want to put myself through this mental stress right now? Because I'm in the middle of scaling a multiple six-figure company and I'm going to be on a plane a lot this year. Does it make financial sense for me to do that? And I was like, no, not really. And it also doesn't make like, you know, cognitive overload. Speaking of that, it just didn't make sense from that aspect either. So I was like, well, let me just go back home, sock away half my income. And then from there, I'm going to decide what I want to do. Now, the issue is I know myself, right? So I know that I can't, you know, contract, 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 conserve, conserve, conserve. That's not all I can do. Like I'm going to be miserable. So what I do is in addition to saving half my income by getting rid of major costs like housing or transportation, well, I also do nice things for myself. I will go get my nails done. Or I realize that after trying for a few months, I am not the kind of person who can just work out by myself from home. I like my fancy gyms. 
right? It actually makes me want to work out, even if I am paying like 120 bucks a month, which a lot of people in the FI community would like shriek over. I can't do it. Like I tried, I can't do it. It makes me miserable. So it's counterproductive in the sense that it's not really doing anything for me and I feel like crap. So I'd rather go spend the 120 bucks at my nice gym that makes me want to go work out, right? And then save money in the areas that make the most impact the fastest. So Amanda, it's funny that you're talking about gym memberships and spending that $120. And my husband and I talk about it all the time as it relates to healthcare and fitness. And the point he brings up, he's a physician, he's an anesthesiologist. So he sees fairly sick patients on a daily basis. And his response is always, if that $120 actually gets you to go to the gym, or if that meal delivery service gets you to eat healthier, those are all costs that are well worth incurring because you're saving an unknown amount in future healthcare costs or future medical care bills or just, you know, your time. Like you may be buying yourself more time. We all have a finite amount of time. And so in that regard, we place fitness and wellness and healthcare and mental health, all of that we place very, very high up on what we're willing to expend dollars on. It's very interesting that we are talking about this in quite this way because I refer to this as the paradox of wealth. And I am actually preparing a specific presentation for Camp Fi this coming weekend of when we're recording this. I'm going to be talking about this. So I'm going to take a couple of the notes that you guys have made, incorporate it. But when I talk about this, I get still get a lot of pushback from the traditional members of the Fi community, especially people who are mustachians. So I'm going to put my mustache on for a moment and say, well, you guys are being inefficient. You could get as much out of life as you are right now by just being more efficient. How do you respond to that? I mean, I think I'm pretty efficient. And if I see places where I can increase efficiency, I absolutely do. But personal issue that I have or bad fit I have with the mustachian community is really that I just don't want to. You know, I don't necessarily want to go out of my way to eat at a restaurant that I don't enjoy the food. So I'm not going to. Yeah, so it's kind of the same with me. And I tried it, okay? I really gave it a good shot for years. And then I had that aha moment where I had to completely flip my thinking. And, you know, to Vina's point, life has just gotten way more fun. (laughs) So it's one of those things where I'm like, "Mm, no, I'm not going back. And, you know, to the point about efficiency, I mean, I'm not efficient if I'm not taking care of myself, period. So if I know, okay, yeah, I could spend 20 bucks on Daily Burn. And I love Daily Burn. It's great while I'm traveling. But like, I know myself. And I think part of money is like, know thyself, right? I have enough discipline to run my business from my house. I do not have enough discipline to run my business from my house and exercise from my house. Like I'm not wired that way. There's a certain amount of social interaction I need in my life in order for me to be productive and efficient. And also like me spending time cooking, that's not me being productive or efficient. And I love to cook, but my time is better spent going to go make more money and enjoying my life. One of my gripes about the FI community, which is one of the reasons I had a difficult time kind of getting into it was, okay, so you're going to sacrifice 10 years of your life at a job you hate. I was a recruiter. So I mean, I dealt with people all the time who were at jobs they hated. And I was like, that's not going to be me. And then they're like, okay, cool. I'm financially independent. I'm making 40 grand a year in passive income, which is awesome. But then they have the panic attack that they realize that's not enough money in the first place, right? In order to actually live and live a life where you're not miserable. So then there's that. 
right? And then on top of that, they're like, oh, I'm going to like quit my job so I can go blog. I'm like, I already get paid to blog and travel and do whatever the hell I want. I don't understand the logic behind all of that personally. But I think it's because I kind of entered the community in a really backwards way. <laughs> it wasn't the traditional way of entering. I think, you know, it's funny, the Mr. Money Mustache thing, I think he's done a lot of good, but also, you know, I think that sometimes people, what, what they would call inefficient, I would actually argue is literally diametrically opposed, 180 degrees could not be more wrong in that their definition of spendy, like for example, my entire wardrobe might cost one half of one of my mortgage payments. Almost everything that I quote unquote spend lavishly on is to save time and to be more efficient. I mean, my wife and I, despite having one-year-old twins, we work with over a thousand kids a year for SAT and ACT. How's that even possible? The only reason it's possible is we have a 20-hour week assistant for the business. We hired my high, my friend's high school son to grade mock SAT, ACT bubbles. We use Instacart religiously. We do XYZ. And that's the only reason why we're able to be that efficient. You know, And as far as the car thing, I think that he actually, that's the number one thing that prevents more people from being part of the FI community. Yes, in New York City, it's uh, viable, but my friend loves this quote. He says, I didn't fight my way to the top of the academic ladder to not have a car. It's not an adult idea. And I think that's the number one thing. Like if by sticking to the whole, the bicycles, I mean, in Atlanta, especially, but just anywhere without a good subway system, which unfortunately is 99% of the acreage in all of America. So that's just my side note on the car thing. One more thing I want to point out, too, is there's a really big difference between being efficient and effective. And if you can be effective in the time that you are spending, whether you're growing the top line or saving on the bottom line, there's a difference between the two. And so I think being effective is far more important than being efficient because if you're multitasking, but you're still being efficient in that time, that is also has some amount of importance or weight. And totally agree with what Brian said. Like for us, it's not possible to not have a car. We live in Dallas. Everywhere is drivable. And so... I don't particularly enjoy driving. So having a car that we like is one thing that gives me pleasure when I'm in the car and I have to drive from asset to asset for an hour sometimes. Talking about cars and driving, I have seriously considered the economics of what it would be like to just not have a car. I live in Little Rock, smaller city than Dallas, but similar concept and just Ubering everywhere. So I've done the math on this because I've never owned a car because I hate driving in South Florida. It gives me major anxiety. If anyone has driven in South Florida, you know why I say that. But I've actually never had a car and I always worked my life where, you know, I, I mean, I live in the middle of the city, so I could always take a bus or walk somewhere, right? But I actually did the math. I did an experiment a few years ago and I was like, okay, well, I work from home. I've never had a car. I wonder how much it would cost if I like used Uber every day instead of like actually having a car. And it came out way cheaper than owning a car and insurance. And that was with trips to the airport. That was with travel in there. So, I mean, it depends where you are. But I mean, that's basically what I do. That being said, I work from home and, you know, there's certain reasons why it works out for me. But I mean, I did it and people who live in major cities don't have cars. They just right. use public transit. So I think it really just depends on like, okay, what is your situation? Where do you live? You know, to Vina's point, like if I do ever buy a car, since I hate it, I might as well get a nice one. <laughs> So again, it just goes to like, know thyself. I think there are many ways to approach FI. There is no one size fits all formula. You know, I do that balancing thing where I save ferociously on things that I don't really care about, but then I will throw down on things like travel or I get a monthly massage so that I feel good. So there's different ways to get to the same place. I think it's just a matter of like, how much are you going to enjoy yourself along the way? That's what it is for me. 
So I'd like to ask you guys about the the difference between scarcity and abundance and the mindset Mm -hmm. that we approach when in our businesses or in our personal lives with our budgets. Do we suffer from a scarcity mindset too much? Yeah, I actually think that that is very much true. And I see this a lot actually in women's groups. I see it a lot more than in mixed groups or male-dominated groups. And I think it's because, you know, women are almost raised from a very young age to have this mindset where we're competing with each other. And I see women tear each other down so often. And it's something that's been a really big mission for myself and one of my other partners. So half of our partners are female at Enzo. So my other partner, Pooja, her and I have been kind of working on this mission to have women who are notoriously under-interested in money and investments be more involved with their investments and also to help lift each other up and And I've never felt that because, you know, Amanda has a very successful blog that that somehow diminishes my ability to earn a dollar. We could probably collaborate and be so much stronger together in some way or another. And so, yes, I think that scarcity mindset paralyzes people and people get very afraid to move forward because they're loss adverse rather than gain. Like they want to make a gain. So people will go out of their way to avoid a loss more so than they will go out of their way to make a gain. So to your point, I agree. I definitely see it a lot more in women. I've worked with a lot of men and women over the years. I think a part of it is, and I think Barbara Stanny says this in her book, Overcoming Under Earning. I recommend it to a lot of my group coaching clients. And I mean, they start crying. Not my private coaching clients. They've already done a pretty good job in terms of their money mindset in order to pay what they're paying for private coaching. But the ones who do group or on demand, you know, I have them read Barbara Stanny's Overcoming Under Earning and they start crying. I mean, it's just like this emotional sort of like dam that breaks. And I think a part of it, she talks about it in that book is like women are taught to be liked, not respected. So I say this to my female clients all the time. I'm like, you want to go get it together with your money? Go observe men and their attitude toward money because they're doing something right. And I remember this was actually at FinCon a few years ago. I remember sitting at a bar and I was just kind of an observer, like seeing this whole situation. So I had like two female colleagues and then like two male colleagues and I'm like the fifth wheel, right? And I'm witnessing this conversation going on between the two genders and it blew my mind because the women were like, oh, you know, I'm really trying to get this business off the ground, but I don't like doing sales or, you know, I feel really uncomfortable. I don't want to come off as conceited. And the guys were like, why would you come off with conceited? You're just saying facts. You know, it was like two totally different worlds, like two totally different conversations going on. And so I agree to Vina's point. Like, I do think it's a bigger issue with women. We are not comfortable with risk. We are not comfortable with power and we're not comfortable with our own ambition for lots of reasons. And the second thing is I think a lot of people in FI are like, oh, I'll be great with like 40 grand a year. I could live off of that. And at some point I'm like, "Uh, I live in South Florida that is not enough money to live off of, number one. And number two, if I'm going to go for it, I'm going for it. Like screw 40 grand. I'm talking 10 mil. If you're going to go for it, go for it. Yeah. And I I think, you know, as far as your question about the scarcity mindset versus abundance philosophy, I think there's a limit to where someone can get to. You can save money by, you know, clipping coupons or doing smart, you know, subscribe and save. There's, There's small wins there, but the whole zero sum paradigm of life, I just don't get it because like, for example, we sound busy. We have one year old twins. We work with a thousand students a year. What the heck are we doing spinning up the other two businesses I mentioned? I view it as a win win. One of the best gifts that I can give, you know, one of the businesses we're spinning up is not ready for prime time yet. There's, 
a person who didn't like her job and she's super talented and she's great. And we're basically building it, spinning it up and we're training her to run it and we can make money. She can have an income. Like there really is no limit to it if you get creative and for better, for worse, you know, I can do triangle problems left-handed in my sleep. I've gotten 436s in the ACT. Like I, my brain is just spinning, thinking of other ideas sometimes when, you know, in between problems when the kid's tutoring. And there's so much opportunity if you get even slightly creative. And like, I, that's one of the best things I can give back to the world is, you know, these two companies at full speed, once we spin them up, they could be provide meaningful income streams, some, some full-time, some part-time for, you know, dozens of people. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
So, Vina, when I built this panel, and I did this on purpose, but in a sense, this group of people I brought together, you guys are all entrepreneurs. Is top line more of an issue and more of an interest for people who are into entrepreneurship? I definitely think so. And I think you'll also see a disparity if you look at high income earners versus like more middle income earners, because entrepreneurs by definition have to see the larger picture. They have to be willing and able to go after a large market share because that's what scalability is. I think that you know, college me might have benefited a lot more from, you know, the Mustachian community or the Choose FI traditional community or the Dave Ramsey community. Whereas now, you know, I go back to why do we work this hard so that we can afford a lifestyle we want. And, you know, to what Amanda said about, oh, I can retire on $40,000 a year. Sure, we could. I've lived on less than that before in my life. Again, don't want to. (laughs) So, you know, when we work toward FI for my husband and I, when I say we're still working toward it, it's not that we couldn't afford to retire today and be fine. It's just the lifestyle that I want, you know, for the rest of my 30s and into however long I live is not a $40,000 a year lifestyle. And so, It's something that I think is really important that we don't distinguish in these communities is why entrepreneurs, they're willing to work 100 hours a week so that they can avoid working 40 hours for somebody else. You know, and it's very much true. I work 100 hours a week and I have no problem doing it because I love what I do. It doesn't feel like a job, but I think that it's important to recognize what the lifestyle you have right now and what lifestyle you want. And are those two things the same thing for your future self? I think that there's a little bit, you are hamstrung a little bit to some extent if you're W-2, but it's not impossible. And there's two examples that come to mind for me. I have a family member who I've introduced to the FI community. And one thing they're doing, you know, he's a big guy. He's going to be safe driving for Uber. He was doing some small things like doing various tasks like Amazon Mechanical Turk and some other things that literally were like below any country's minimum wage, much less our minimum wage. It didn't make any sense. I said, you're a big guy. You're safe. You have a paid off car. It's it's good enough for Uber. If you did that for four hours a week, it would make more than you make in four months doing those, you know, those mechanical Turk tasks are not fun to begin with anyways. And so that's, that's one example. And the other example is one of our students. One of our students was working at Chick-fil-A here in Atlanta. And, you know, by the time you pay for dry cleaning, gasoline, all the other stuff, effectively after tax, she's making probably, I don't know, four bucks an hour, 450 an hour, maybe. And I said, well, your GPA is not quite where it needs to be anyways for the schools you're looking at. And you can get merit aid if you get a better GPA, et cetera. Why don't you babysit? Literally, you know, you're going to babysit for some seventh grader who just is going to be playing Xbox while you get better grades and get paid 10 bucks an hour, whether you pay taxes on that or not, it's up to you and the, the IRS, but, you know, but, but, you know, literally anybody, if they're creative about it, whether it be the W2 person or even some of our students can get creative and still benefit, I think. Yeah. And to Brian's point, it does come to the creativity. And look, I used to be a recruiter. I understand like people with W-2 jobs feel like they are kind of stuck and kind of like my mom calls it like they're on a drip, right? Like they're just getting money on a drip and they're addicted to the drip. However, let's not fool ourselves and think that there aren't people out there with W-2 jobs making excellent money, getting raises, doing career changes, maybe moving up management, going to another department. So like it's still totally possible. I mean, I have clients who switch careers to get raises, you know, or I have clients who maybe they were working on the, um, I don't know, maybe customer service side of a corporate company. And then they're like, okay, well, I want to go make more money. Let me go learn about the sales department. Right. So, I mean, there's ways of doing it. And to Brian's point, it's just a matter of creativity. 
So, Vina, let's talk about that creativity a little bit. Amanda was mentioning people who change careers because they saw more economic potential. When you went into real estate, was it a love of real estate or was it just that it had a huge top line potential? So, I always say that I took the shortcut into real estate because I actually come from a real estate family. So I've been doing this my whole entire life. I remember going to closings when I was like six or seven, maybe. And it wasn't until maybe about 10 years ago that I realized that not everybody did that when they were kids. And that was weird and not normal. And I figured it out when I was talking to some friends who were asking me, so when I go to closing, like, what happens? Do I have to do? And I was like, well, it's just like all the other ones you've done. And she's like, this is our first time buying a house. I have no idea what we're looking at. It's like, no, like, you know, when your parents took you and they were like, No, Vina, that did not happen for all of us. You know, I do love real estate. You know, I know it really well. I understand it really well. And I don't think that I would enjoy any other job or any other career path as much as I do real estate. It doesn't hurt that it's also a high income earning potential as well. But, you know, I also invest into other scalable businesses. You know, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. My dad was somebody who was always on a W-2 income and he retired early from his W-2 job because they saved. So it's possible with a W-2 income. I think a really big part of that was my mom, who was the one running our real estate business. And she also, you know, retired early, quote unquote. I say that loosely because there was this company called Easy Breezy Cleaning here in Dallas that was for sale. The owners were ready to retire. My mom had gone into retirement and came back out of retirement because she wanted to start running this business. So I think once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And I think once you find your niche, you just try to look for something that you can scale. And I think that's kind of the key to financial independence from the entrepreneurial side of it. Brian, bounce off what Vina just said. Once you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. Is that why you started your own business? And somewhere I heard you say that you are not planning to scale anymore. Is that true? So our company, I've talked about this at length, the tutoring industry is a very unique industry, probably the hardest industry to scale in the, in the world if you want to maintain quality. And the reason why is like in all of Atlanta, 8 million people, there's about 10 people that do it full time. And then there's these big box college agencies where they'll bill you out at like one ninety an hour and, and pay the people 22 bucks to fight Atlanta traffic, which anybody who sticks around for that, like if you're any good, you're just going to go leave. There's no barrier to entry. And so part of why we've chosen not to scale is one, I want to be able to tell a person, hey, you're actually getting an experienced tutor that knows what they're talking about. But two, anybody that I would hire would have to be good, which by definition, they'd probably leave in six months because why would you stick around for you know, get, you know know being billed out at 10x and getting paid x and fighting Atlanta traffic, which is not lovely. So yeah, so I, you know, I, I also advocate for some of my friends who have these kind of tendencies. Uh, I call it chicken entrepreneurship, which is, you know, my wife was growing it full time while I was still at W2 and doing it evenings and weekends. And we literally did it until we couldn't do it anymore. We were chicken about it, you know, holding on to the health benefits, et cetera. And truthfully, I probably should have bailed on corporate America probably 18 months before I did, but we were just being cautious about it. And I think we were able to, I'm grateful, we were able to make the correct long-term decisions for the business because we didn't have a burning platform of, oh crap, we have to, we're running out of money. Oh, what do we do? And making suboptimal or not, you know, correct decisions for the long-term. And so I couldn't be happier with how things have gone. You know, the joke I make is you know, I let my first day out of the corporate world was, was uh, MLK Day 2014, you know, free at last, free at last. <laughs> I think that for people who have awesome ideas, who are so smart and so creative, they think it's all or nothing. Chicken entrepreneurship, honestly, couldn't be a bigger fan of because it defrays the risk. And if you fail miserably, then you can laugh about it. You know, a domain name on GoDaddy does not cost very much. 
So Amanda, I want to pivot a little bit. Sometimes I worry when we talk about people who are interested in top line, how do we top liners define enough? When is enough enough? So Bob Proctor talks about this, be happy but never satisfied. Because the moment you stop growing, you start dying. And any a person who is very entrepreneurial un- understands that very well. I used to hear people say that and I didn't get it. They'd be like, oh, I got to six figures and then I got miserable for a while. And I'm like, what? How could you be miserable? Because in my mind, it was like, this is the ticket. This is what's going to save me, right? And then I got there and then I experienced that dip everybody talks about right? And I'm like, oh, it's because you start stalling and you're literally not wired to stall. Like this is just not your personality. So happy, but never satisfied, if that makes sense. Vina, you make that $20 million deal. You are now flush with cash, more than maybe you could spend. Do you stop doing what you're doing? Do you leave your job? Do I quit my job? So that is the $20 million question, right? So I always say, look, when I get to my FI goals, I'm going to scale back and stop. And, you know, I said I was going to take maternity leave too, and that hasn't really happened. And it's not because I can't or my partners wouldn't let me or anything like that. It's just I can't stay out of what I do because I love it. And so, you know, I get antsy, I get restless. And so what my partners and I, so my founding partner and I, his name is Sap and Talati. What we always talk about, and this is kind of the same conversation we revisit about every six months or so to kind of recalibrate the goals for the company. And what him and I always go back to, because we share this mindset of we're doing all of this so we can have 100% of our time back. So instead of doing a, you know, maybe four $50 million deals in a year, now we do one $200 million portfolio in a year. So maybe that takes three months out of the year for us to get from start to finish, but it's essentially not four times the amount of work to do that. And so that's kind of how we're pivoting the company every few months. But I don't think that I will ever be completely hands off. I don't see it happening. I'd love to say yes, and then we're going to travel the world and I'm never going to check my email. And that's just probably not realistic. (laughs) Brian, is there a top line treadmill? I mean, can we get so addicted to this idea of making more and more money, scaling more and more that we need bigger and bigger returns to be happy with what we're doing? I don't know. I I think everybody has their own sort of curvature as far as where they get. I mean, I certainly do where, you know, I'm at the point now where if I can just spend my efforts trying to maintain the same top line while working fewer hours by outsourcing things, that's fine with me. So I I think that it is that whole time versus income balance. I'm not someone who could sit there on the beach and stare at the ocean for weeks at a time. That's just not how I'm wired. But yes, I mean, there's a limit beyond which you know, I would claim my time back. And if I woke up tomorrow and there was randomly $100 million sitting in my account, you know, more than I could ever spend, I would actually, my pet issue is actually financial literacy. I think it's almost criminal that we make kids learn certain topics in school, but there's not a required, I, I work with state governments to try and make a mandatory, you can't graduate from high school unless you've had a personal finance class. So, you know, home personal economics instead of home economics, not that people even do home ec anymore even. So I mean, that, that's my my pet issue that, you know, so I'd still be working hard. It's just if, uh, if I magically had that much money, there's still more fun things to do with my time. Brian, are you willing to tell us your net worth goal? I don't really know that I have one. We actually just started redoing our budget, like I mentioned recently. So I don't even know what that 25X would be. 
I'm definitely more of the fat fire variety, not because I spend a lot. I don't I have a boring paid off Hyundai and whatnot. Um, more just from a, from a caution standpoint. My, if my wife were a rapper, she'd be cautious by nature. But you know, I, I do think there are a few pockets of respect for the fat fire line of logic. You know, there's the fat fire group, there's your guys group, white could investor position on fire. Uh, I see a position common thread here. But you know, I think that there's a right amount for everybody and, and that right amount is different. So I try, even though I want to sometimes not to criticize the whole $40,000 a year thing to Amanda's point. Like I can't picture that. Like I would rather work harder and, uh, be a little safer and, and whatnot. But other people that it works for, you know, I have friends in Atlanta who they work in, they're nurses. I used to work in the healthcare field before we built our company and I went to their housewarming. I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, they're both nurses, male nurse and female nurse, and they um, lived off one income. They paid off their house in full. It is a ridiculous house. Now, granted, it's in the exurbs, like XX exurbs of Atlanta, but literally they just lived off one income for a decade and they, they're like the most chill, least stressed out people ever. And they do live on almost nothing. You know, I don't see that often because they're an hour without traffic away. You know, for them, that's the right thing. They have five kids. So, Amanda, do you have a net worth goal? Are you willing to share that with us? Yeah. So it just keeps going up, to be honest. I think that's the thing about goals is like, and this is a harsh lesson I had last year when my company got to the six figures. I was going to be like, okay, yeah, cool. I made it. Cause that's what everybody like tells you online. Like you're golden once you get there and then you get there and you're like, this isn't real money, not even close after taxes and expenses. So I expect when I hit the seven figures, the same thing is going to happen. And then it's just going to keep going up right now. It's like I said, if I'm going to go for financial independence, I'm really going to go for it. So I'm talking like 10 mil, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. But then I'll get there and I'll probably be like, no, I can do better. It just is like, not that it's not enough, but just more of like reaching my potential kind of a thing. Vina, dare I ask? Oh gosh. I mean, I, it's funny because Amanda almost took the exact words out of my mouth because when I started, you know, really getting into investing for ourselves and I left my W-2 job, you know, I thought, okay, when we get to a million dollars, that's when we retire. And then after we got there, I said, okay, $2 million. And so like she said, every year, it basically just kind of goes up and up. And I think, again, that is just part of an entrepreneur's personality is always keeping that moving goalpost. I mean, I'm 30. So I have a lot of room until I retire. This is where I can take the most risks because the way I see it is if I lose everything now, I can start over and I still have enough time to make up for whatever risks I took on now. And so I think the goalpost keeps moving. Today, it's at 20 million, but ask me again like a year from now and it might go up. You know, they say making your first million is the hardest. And then after that, it just gets exponentially easier. And I do think it's true. And it's not because you have money and it makes money. I think it's actually because now you know how to make that money. And so you can be more effective or more efficient in doing so. That's exactly right. I think they said that you become the person who's able to earn a million dollars. And once you become that person, then it kind of snowballs from there. So I'm curious, let's revisit this original question. Do we focus too little on top line? I think we all are all the guests here would universally nod their heads to yes. In the financial independent movement, we are not focusing on it enough. So I'll spin the question a little bit for the audience. Who should be thinking more about growing their top line and what mindset shift would you suggest? I would say anybody and everybody 
should focus on growing the top line. And I'd say after you've taken reasonable, intelligent movements for basic cost cutting stuff, you know, shopping around your insurance and all, you know, all the basic stuff that the FI community focuses on. After you've done the basic stuff, that's when it's hard to squeeze anymore. And that's when you should probably pivot, whether you're a W-2 person or a W-2 person who can do some moonlighting or entrepreneur, it, it doesn't really matter what category you are. But after you've, I guess that's the best, the shortest way to say it. After you've taken reasonable steps to minimize costs, then pivot and put all your balls in that court. Amanda, same question to you. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think everybody should be looking at making more money at all times. And I also think like, you know, I get really passionate about it. And I say like, I wasted so much time, you know, just like cutting expenses and just barely making enough. But the reality of the situation is like, I had to learn how to do that. And I had to learn what I valued. And I had to learn to become disciplined so that I could do what I do now. So it's not like a total waste of time. I just wish I would have had the epiphany much sooner than I actually did. So I think that's a part of it. And I think, you know, in terms of when to do it, I think honestly, as soon as possible, like why would you even wait? Why wait? Do it now. Yeah, why wait? Do it now. Yeah, and I know a lot of people will be like, oh, that's so scary. That's so risky. And I'm like, listen, and I say this all the time, like when it comes to money, what got you from A to B is not going to get you from B to C. And that's money and anything else in life. So most people are trying to get to what I call financial solvency, right? Which your baseline, basically. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you do a little bit more than baseline. All right. That takes a certain amount of skill sets, but those same skill sets are not going to get you to build wealth. There comes a point where you got to switch that mindset. So for me, that switch came when I was like, okay, I know how to manage money. I know how to save money. I know what matters to me. I know I'm not going to go crazy. I can trust myself with spending. What shift do I need to make right now? And I think that takes an insane amount of self-awareness, which unfortunately, I think that the whole money community or, or people's issues with money is two things. Things. It's lack of education and lack of self-awareness. It's both. I really like that. And that probably changes through your seasons of life. And so your strategies might adjust a bit. I like that. All right, Vina, how about you? What are your thoughts on this question? I agree. I think everybody should be focusing on that. And what Brian said, I just want to echo that once you've already taken your reasonable measures to cut costs, I think the most important thing is, is whatever season of life you are in, that you always live well within your means, that's going to be probably one of the biggest things that's going to help as you kind of move into that next phase is keeping on living well within your means and having realistic expectations within that. You know, one of the things I say, again, because I'm in a lot of female groups, stay-at-home moms notoriously undervalue themselves. And it's something we see over and over and over again. And they think because they don't have a paycheck and there's no addition to the top line, that somehow there's no value. And that is completely untrue. So I think too is consider when you're looking at the top line, look at it from a holistic perspective and not just a straight dollar perspective. Because there is a cost to you being the family chef and the family chauffeur and the maid. And, you know, before my husband and I got married, I thought I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom before, you know, actually doing something that I love this much that I can't stop. And he said something to me that I still remember all these years later, but when I said it to him, he said, well, you know, if you really took the actual like hard cost value of a stay-at-home mom, it's about $150,000 a year. And he had just read some article about it. And when I, I remember when I told my mom that he said that, she said, marry him because he will never undervalue what you do, no matter what it is. And so, you know, I just think that that's also important to point out in the context of when we're talking about women specifically is, you know, stay-at-home moms have a lot of 
of value. It's not all about a dollar that you're contributing to the top line. And you know, the other thing I'll say is continue cutting coupons and keep, you know, doing those things that are they're minimal additional effort to still have a small financial gain. It still makes sense to do those things. My husband makes fun of me all the time because I guess I'm really quirky about things like our press and seal saran wrap. Like I don't like him using too much of it. And he's like, we've had the same role for like two years. Why are you freaking out about it? And I'm like, because I don't want to waste it because it's so expensive. And he's like, we can buy more. It's like $4 at the store. I'm like, no, I don't want to waste it. So, you know, I think we all have those little quirks, but it's a holistic view. It's not just any one thing. Yeah, I really like the point you made about it's about maintaining the margin is as you grow and you still live below your means. I think uh, Paula Pant referred to that as mining the gap. Mm-hmm. And that kind of solves this this equation. I mean, like if you just mine the gap, then you know, you're going to come out ahead. So it's savings rate when it comes down to it. Yeah. It's just easier to live below your means when you make more money, speaking Mm -hmm. of someone who learned the hard way. And I think another part of it is a lot of people talk about lifestyle creep and lifestyle inflation. And I'm like, listen, lifestyle inflation was good to me because I moved into this apartment, right? When I didn't have to. And people were like, are you crazy? You could save so much more money. But the fact that I had to do that and it was a nice apartment, I was right on the water. It's like what I always wanted, right? Well, that actually, kind of forced me to really hustle and my business blew the F up when I did that. So I don't always think lifestyle creep or lifestyle inflation is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's lots of people in like the money mindset space who talk about, you know, growing into something, you Mm. know, putting yourself in a situation where you got to go hustle to go find that money. And for me, like that's actually really helped because I was so risk averse. It was almost like I had to train myself to learn how to take risks. And that was a way of doing it. Perfect end to a very interesting conversation. I like to give each of you a chance to promote where we can find you and let the audience know what is up next. So Brian, where can we find you? What's up next? Uh, yeah, you can find us on edisonprep.com. Edison, like Thomas Edison, P-R-E-P.com. We do have a Facebook page as well where we post stuff every week. And then a couple times a year, we have a great blog that's if you have listeners who are have kids who will be in the college hunt. They're data focused and very strategic a couple times a year for the blog posts and then weekly stuff for Facebook. So great ways to save money on the second most expensive purchase that uh, a mm-hmm. lot of families will make. That's right. Amanda, where can we find you and what is up next for you? So you can find me at amandaabea.com. That's A-B-S and boy, E-L-L-A.com. And what's up next is we're going to be running another live group coaching version of my best-selling business program called Persuade to Profit. And this is a group coaching that's gotten lots of people, particularly in the finance space, to go from making $1,000 a month to six figures within a year. So if there's anyone listening who's like, I'm ready, We'd be more than happy to help you. And you can just go to amandaabea.com forward slash persuade to profit to learn more about it. All right, Bina, where can we find you and what is up next for you? Yes, you can find me at enzomultifamily.com. That's E-N like Nancy, Z like Zebra, O, multifamily.com. You can also find me in the Facebook group and on probably a billion other Facebook groups that I'm in and active in. And what's up next for us, I think... For Enzo, we are focusing on the Florida markets this year. We're also going to continue in the Dallas markets because it's a home market for us. But I think Florida is really going to be our big focus this year for B-class multifamily asset acquisitions.
All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Brian, Amanda, and Vina. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. You guys have questions? What did you think? I, I thought, thought that fun. was great. Vino, you and I need to become friends. You <laughs> thought that already. Yeah, Brian and I already are. Yeah. It, can be, like, it can be lonely in the fat fire side of things. Uh, <laughs> we're out, we're yeah. outnumbered. It's like the, it's, it literally is the Alamo. I know. <laughs> I know. The reason they asked me to be on this is because he knew I keep getting ostracized and he didn't want me to stop contributing about how I don't care about saving $5. Yeah, That's well, actually... Oh, I triggered the hell out of people on Twitter the other day. I forgot who it was. I was like, frugality is bullshit. <laughs> right? And then I had said how one of my mentors had finally put an, a dollar amount. He's like, if you want to comfortably save half your income, which the millionaires do per household minimum, you're looking at 400 grand a year. Right. And I posted that on Twitter and half the fire people came after <laughs> me. Next like, tag that's me. impossible. No one's going to make that. And then the other half were like, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> the other half were like, yeah, duh. It makes total sense. They, the they got real triggered by that one. <laughs> yeah, the greatest thing about Vina is I know when I put something in the Facebook group, like I know her response is just going to make me laugh. Because <laughs> I'm very matter of fact about it now. Yeah. I used to be a lot more reserved because I get so much pushback from people about why I had to do this or why I had to do that. I'm like, listen, you don't live in my house and you don't pay my bills, so you don't get a vote. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you just don't. I've decided that's going to be Vina. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> you know you don't buy boats and planes. You make friends with boats and planes. There you yep. go. That's true. So all of my friends at some point in our life, I have tried to convince them why they need their own private plane or their own boat because I need to be their friend that doesn't have it that can borrow theirs. I have, a, I have, a, this isn't a net worth goal. This is just like a, cause I travel a lot for work and for pleasure. And I'm like, I'm so tired of dealing with airports. Like I love to travel, but I hate the traveling part of traveling sometimes. Sure. And I'm like, goal, charter private jets. How much does that cost? Net jets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I 100%. Oh, this is right, Paul? Am I right? Better quality, yeah. Okay. I mean, I really just need to buy a microphone is really what this is. I just yeah, have it. Sev- $70. Like, I don't know. That was our coupon for it. <laughs> Vina, you make that $20 million deal. You are now flush with cash, more than maybe you could spend. Do you stop doing what you're doing? Do you leave your job? I know how to spend money really well. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody needs help, you let me know. I know where the Chanel store is. I can help. Um, Amanda, you have to join the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. We have all these conversations and and you and Vina will be like superpowers. (laughs) We'll be on the same island. (laughs) I got you. We'll tag team. (laughs) You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening 
Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.